Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to preach from down here, unlike we did on Easter. Um, But if you need me to stand up taller, let me know, and I'll just get up on my tiptoes. but, you, okay, thank you. Um, you know, there's, uh, I, I remember reading about Charles Spurgeon, the 18th century uh, famous preacher from London, Baptist preacher, that one of the things he struggled with more in life as a preacher was that he could not figure out what text to preach on. And so pretty much every Saturday night, he was up late trying to figure out what even passage to preach on and then would prepare his sermon through the night or in the morning and then go preach. And I promised myself I would never do that. Um, I promised myself we would have kind of preaching series laid out, and partly that's because I don't want the stress of trying to figure it out the night before. But it's also because I trust the word of God, that if we say we're gonna go through the book of Luke or Acts or, or something like that, that God can use that for somebody, for us that given day. It's God's word for us. It's alive, it's real. 
So we're supposed to be kicking off a new series called Contagious about the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts and how the good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone. But once again, it seems like death struck, at least for me. Um, I know not every one of you know this, uh, but a, a friend of mine and a guy who has been in this church from the beginning, he died this week. Um, his name is Keith Ryle, and he's uh, in his mid-40s. Two years ago, he was probably the healthiest guy you could know. Um, they ran marathons, triathlons, ate the kind of healthy food you and I get scared of, and was diagnosed with stage four non-smoker lung cancer. And he battled for the past two years until this Monday he got the diagnosis that he had weeks left, maybe eight weeks. They called hospice on Wednesday. Wednesday the bed was brought in and that was his first night in the bed at home and he never woke up. And in some ways it's a mercy compared to kind of dragging that on. But it caused me to be filled once again with just that weight, that deep sorrow, that deep just heaviness that comes when we're struck by death close to us again. And about this time, I'm pretty sick of death. If you were here last week, you realize that I'm not a friend of death. And I don't ever plan on being. I hate it. And so a combination of my own kind of burdens in this with a friend and family that's part of this church and a friend of mine, as well as an email from about a week ago and a phone call by one of our kind of church elders here who said, maybe you should take the time to kind of hit on this stuff again, sort of like you did on Easter. And so this morning is really you being a part of what I'm working through, which is how do we live life and death with Jesus? How do we kind of walk through this stuff that is weightier than we are able to carry? Death seems so full and man so small, as one singer put it recently. But what I've found is this. I've found it's actually easy to be inoculated from the heavier things of life in Northern Virginia, in America in general, but especially in Northern Virginia. And I see it play out this way. Most people around here are actually not active atheists. Most people around here are passive agnostics. They're not sure, and they're fine with not knowing. That's the general vibe around here, and really it's because we live safe and secure lives for the most part. When we're sick, we can take care of it. We have a thousand channels and full refrigerators, so who wants to talk about God and death? Until death comes close, right? And until maybe something comes along and we realize just how short and fragile life is. And maybe in those moments for a couple of days or weeks after somebody dies near us or something big strikes us, maybe for a couple of weeks we ask bigger questions than what's on TV tonight. But you know what usually happens is we want to put God on trial. We want him to stand so we can question him. Why, God? Why did you let this happen? What are you doing here? But as I've found, as I've engaged the scriptures, as I've walked in this life with Jesus, what I've found is that God points us to another set of questions. 
His questions for us in this are, who are you? Why are you here? What is life all about? Where is it all going? And how can you experience the true and lasting life I'm offering you? So that's what we're sort of taking a stab at this morning. We're going to look at Romans 8.28, but instead of reading it and asking why God, we're going to ask, why am I here? Where is it all going? And how can I have what it's talking about here? So Romans 8.28, it's one of the more famous Bible verses out there. I'm going to read it in the ESV. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. It sounds like a trite Hallmark card, quite frankly. Really? Really, God? All things work together for good? Divorce? The abuse that I dealt with as a kid? Addiction? The death of my own dad when I was little? Really? All things, God? But you know, Paul is writing this in Romans 8. Paul had dealt with a few bad things in his life, completely rejected by all of his family. He had been scourged and beaten like Jesus had been several times. He had been stoned to death. That's not rock concert stoned. That's the really bad stones thrown at you. He had been in prison numerous times for nothing that he did wrong. And he says all things work together for good. In fact, he's able to go so far in verse 18 of Romans 8 to say, the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed. And he's talking about real, deep, painful sufferings he's dealt with. He goes on in verse 35 to describe the kinds of suffering he means when he says, what can separate us from God's love? Can persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's talking about suffering, starvation, war, And then in verse 38, he says, not even rulers and powers or death can separate us from the love of God. Now think about it. He is writing when there were Roman emperors, and he's writing to the church in Rome, right? Roman emperors at that time had the power to kill anybody they wanted, and they regularly did horrific things to people. Nero in the 60s was known to have impaled Christians alive after dipping them in oil and lighting them on fire. Sounds pretty bad. Crucifixion was common. Jesus was not the only one who was considered a rebel and crucified. They took whole families and put them in the middle of Colosseums, not to play football or baseball, but so that they could watch animals tearing them apart. Not even that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul means God is telling us All things, all things can be used by God. Christianity does not believe that circumstances must be good in a way that 
that we think about it like, that things will always be favorable or easy. God will work all things for good. Things will always be easy or, or positive. And if you ever walk into a version of Christianity that suggests if you have real faith or enough faith, it will lead to easy circumstances, pain-free life, financial prosperity, or anything along the lines of that, it is a false gospel. It, mis it misrepresents Jesus and it ignores the cross, which was real suffering bringing good. Rather, Christianity says good things and bad things happen to Christians and non-Christians. But for those who are in Christ, God will work them for your and my greater good. So then we ask, what good could God mean? Pastor Tim Keller from New York City says, by good, God does not mean that he promises you a better life circumstance. He does not promise you better life circumstance. Rather, he promises you a better life. And I would add to that that he promises life to the full, eternal life. By good in this passage, what God is offering is deeper, truer life. The life you and I always wanted, but we tend to seek in anything other than Jesus. What is the good that we read about in Romans 8.28, towards which all things are being worked by God for those who are in Christ? This deeper, truer, lasting life? I'm going to suggest, based on reading the rest of Romans 8, which is the way you figure out what a Bible verse means, you kind of go before it and after it, just like you don't take anybody's quote out of context, that the good that God is offering us in spite of circumstances is first to know God as your father. The second is to be filled deeply with Jesus. And the third is to experience love, the love of God in Jesus for you. So what good does God, is God working all things towards? The first is to know God the Father. In verse 23 of Romans 8, which we read, we read that we ourselves groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This verse, and much of Romans 8, suggests stuff that we've talked about here before, that we are made for more than this life. It's why, it's why death hurts so much. It's why death brings so much pain and anger and hate. It's because we are not made to die. Death is unnatural based on how God wired us. We groan to be adopted, meaning we deeply long for more than 80 years, or 45, or 50, or 12. And we long for the redemption of our bodies, it says in verse 23, meaning we long for what Jesus already has, resurrection. We long for Easter to be our reality, to not just have death be the final door, but to know that we will rise to life eternal because that's what we are made for. But what this passage also tells us is the way to know eternity is to first know God as your dad. 
We need adoption into God's family. Now, this is the language of Romans 8, that we need to be adopted as children of God. And adoption in the Bible and in Greco-Roman times was a very, very rich thing. It meant the total transformation of a person who was subject to slavery or prostitution apart from adoption. Because a person without a father was a completely helpless person. They had no legal rights, no identity of their own, and they were destined for a life of slavery or, if they were a girl, prostitution. So when somebody adopted you, you had your entire life transformed. Your identity was now bound up in your new father, which gave you legal status and protection, and it gave you a destiny, a hope, and a future. What's more, in Roman law, adopted sons could not be disinherited. Now, if you had a brash, horrible, natural son, you could disinherit them. You could actually put them in prison. But Roman law protected adopted children, meaning to be adopted as God's child is to be completely secure. It is to have a hope you could not have on your own. It is to be completely secure. And it's also, according to this passage here, to know God as your Abba, which is, of course, kind of a Hebraism, meaning father, daddy, papa. It's a more personal way of talking about God as father. I love watching little two, three, four-year-olds around a loving father. They jump into their arms. They play around their legs, like going around a flagpole. I remember seeing uh, little Caroline Berry, who's about four now, when a dog was coming nearby, I think she climbed her dad and got on top of him. But once she was on her dad, she was safe and secure. You know what it's like, right? On Thursday morning, when Keith Ryle died, his four-year-old son was there. And we had to bring him over to see his daddy. And he said, I, I don't want daddy to go. I miss daddy. I want my daddy back. And later on when we asked, well, no, what, what do you... What do you like most about your daddy? What do you miss most? Hugs. Hugs. In the past year and a half, that's about all Keith could provide. That's all he wanted. You know, you may have never experienced daddy like this in your life. I know that some of you have had challenging fathers. Some of you have lost your father. Some of you have never even known your real father. But even if you've had a great earthly father, even the best earthly fathers are meant to be a reflection that points us to our true father, God. We are made to know God, not just as our maker, but also as our loving father, our daddy. Theologian J.I. Packer said this is the most radical thing that Jesus introduced to the Jewish understanding of God. It's to recognize that God is not just almighty, holy, just. He is all those things. But he is also your father, your papa, your daddy. In verse 15 and 16 of Romans 8, 
we read that the Spirit of God draws our souls, the Spirit of God draws our souls to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. Now, we may have trouble with this intellectually, or we might think it's a bit um, uncomfortable to think about God in this way. But this passage says our very souls long to cry out like a little kid, I want my daddy. I just want my daddy. And the one you want is God. In all things, God is working to bring good. The first good he is working is to draw you to himself, to know him, God, as your father, now and forever. The second, the second good that I see in this passage that God is working all things towards is to be filled with Jesus. We read in verse 29, God works all things for good to those who love him. And then verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So let me just kind of jump out of that and not get dug up into the weeds here. Basically, that's saying God's purposes for you and me are to be conformed to the image of his son, his son, Jesus. Image of God's son reminds me of Genesis. Male and female, he made them. He made them in the image of God, he made them. You see, our intended created purpose was to be an image bearer of God. But sin mars our God-reflecting image. And instead, the way most of us live is we go around making ourselves in our own image. But this says that God wants to conform us to the image of his son. And I see it as a lifelong and eternal process of growing deeper and deeper in Jesus forever. And I actually think we're going to be doing it through eternity. You're never going to plumb the depths of being filled with Jesus. What does it mean that God wants to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus? It's not just being really good like Jesus. If I say God wants to conform you into the image of his son, what we tend to think about was, well, Jesus was a really good guy. So I need to be really good. I do not think that's what this is saying, primarily. Rather, I think it's that God wants us to be so filled with Christ so full of Jesus' love for you that it transforms your understanding of yourself, of people around you, of who you are before God, and it changes the way you think and therefore live. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does that mean? It means instead of me being full of me, which is my natural tendency, I become full of Jesus, and my desires and longings become aligned with Jesus. And so it's not just that I outwardly look more like Jesus, it's that I experience transformation of my very self. It kind of sums up like this. My heart, my soul, your heart, your soul is made to find rest in God alone. 
and it will be dissatisfied in anything else. When your heart and your soul and your very self is filled with Jesus, your soul and your heart and you will be as you are meant to be. Circumstances can change, but they cannot steal being filled with Jesus. That is a good that God can work through all things. And the third good that God is working is to experience the love of God in Jesus. In verse 35, Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And in verse 39, he answers it, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, look, this is an easy one. We all want to be loved. We all want to be loved and accepted and approved of. We all want love. And it's why we seek family and friends and parents' approval and the satisfaction of relationships. But what you seek from husbands or parents or girlfriends or children or friends, even at its best, it does not last it cannot ultimately satisfy. Only God can. We are made to experience God's love, his deep, personal love. And we get a picture of the love that God is offering us when we look at Jesus. And that's why we've been doing that the past 12 weeks. You know, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is John 4. It's the story of the woman at the well. And you get a picture of God's love for us as he is sitting by this well. And this woman, who is a prostitute in the town, comes walking down and sees Jesus alone. And you know what she's thinking? She's thinking, I know myself and I know love when I offer myself. And even as she approaches the well where Jesus is sitting in John 4, she approaches thinking, once again, I'm going to be used, but at least I'll know a little bit of love. And of course, Jesus has no intention to use her. Instead, Jesus says, look, I don't want to know you that way because I already know you. I know you more deeply than you know yourself. And I want you to experience love that is not attached to anything you have to give me. I want you to experience God's love, the love of being known deeply in spite of your sin and your ugliness and all the stuff you hide and to still be welcomed in. But that kind of love transforms. That woman did not remain in her life style. She went from prostitute to preacher that day. The climax of God's love for us is Jesus. Romans 5.8 tells us God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We long to be known and loved and accepted in spite of ourselves. Despite our selfishness or our cowardliness or our failures, or our imperfections. You know, it's one of our great fears when we enter into relationships with one another. We want to be deeply known, but we fear that if people really know us, they're either going to laugh 
or they're going to reject us. Which is why human relationships feel so risky and are so challenging. But not with Jesus. The gospel says Jesus' love is unconditional. Jesus takes our sins and our failures and nails them to the cross so that we can experience love that is not dependent on our performance, on what we bring to the relationship, just like every other relationship seems to be. Jesus' love is dependent not on what we do, but what he has done, on his performance, his death on the cross. We bring nothing. What can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus? Trouble, hardship, famine, death? Nothing. You know, the only thing that can separate you from God's love for you in Christ Jesus is you. We think of all the things that we can deal with in life and what we really want in life. But what can really hurt you is whatever keeps you from Jesus. Pride, self-sufficiency, selfishness, denying your sinfulness, ignoring your neediness. You know what I've found? I've found that trials, failures, and death around me it shakes the foundation of of my one-man self-sufficiency castle. And I realize this castle that I build up is really made of sand and not of stone. When difficulty comes, the truth is revealed. And I've come to the point where I would say, in all honesty, whatever humbles me, whatever helps me to see the depth of my sin, or admit my need for God is a good because it shows me my need of God and of the love he's offering me in Jesus. In Jesus. In Jesus, God wants to offer us glory and intimacy. These are two other pictures that we get here in Romans 8. You see, we want to matter. We want to last. It's why guys in particular, guys in particular really resonate with movies like Braveheart or Saving Private Ryan because we want to be a part of something bigger. It's why things like the Marines or, or joining a company like Google seems exciting because you're joining something bigger than yourself. You want to be a part of something that matters and something that lasts. You want to be weighty. That's called glory in the Bible. And while we seek it in other things, The Bible says the only place to find purpose and meaning that lasts is in God, the source of glory. And we also want intimacy. And the picture of God as our Abba Father or the love that is for us in Jesus is a picture of being known and of being loved, of being accepted in spite of all your crud. It's being intimate with your very creator. To be filled with and loved by Jesus, to experience God as your Father, to be known intimately, to taste eternal glory, I think is the good that we are made for. When we say God is working all things, even 
suffering and trial and death for good for those who love him. It is this type of good. God is offering us life in him, filled with him. God is our father, a love that cannot be taken away. And God wants to do that in your life. But of course, there's a catch. The catch is this. Jesus. I'm going to be quite frank with you. I want to convert you. I want every person that I ever meet to know and believe Jesus the way I do. I'm never going to stop seeking that. I will love you as best as I can if you reject Jesus. But goodness gracious, I want you to know life in a world filled with death. I want you to know hope in a world filled with despair. I want you to know intimacy with your creator in a world which will reject you if you are not pretty enough or fast enough or smart enough. And so I will do whatever it takes to get you to know Jesus savingly. You know, you can come to church your entire life and never actually do this. You could show up in church every week your entire life and never actually experience life and salvation in Jesus. Because it's a little bit risky. It involves surrendering everything and trusting Jesus entirely. But it's also very simple. All you have to do is surrender everything and trust Jesus entirely. You don't have to be good enough or religious enough. You simply need to be able to say, Jesus, I surrender all. I want what you're offering. I want to know God as my Father, to be filled with you as my Savior, to experience true and lasting love. And I accept you, Jesus, as my source of good, my only Savior, and my God. I don't know how long you have left on this earth. On Monday, Keith Ryle was given eight weeks. On Thursday morning, he was dead. None of us knows how long we have. But you know what? You don't have to be full of despair. You don't have to be defeated or fearful. You really don't. You can know peace, joy, hope that can deal with any and all things. You can have the good of God in Jesus today. It's not the morally good and the really religious who know and experience Christ's love and salvation. It's the helpless and the needy. Are you willing to admit that you're a sinner? Are you willing to recognize Jesus as your Savior and God? That's it. That's all you have to do. And then tell somebody that you did it to make it real. I'm going to pray. And if you want more of Jesus today, or if you want what God is offering you for the first time today, pray with me in your head. Tell me, email me later. 
We all need the depth of what God is offering us more and more. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't fully know if everything that the Bible says about you is true. I'm not sure I fully grasp all of this, but I want what you're offering. And so I surrender all to know you as my Father, God, to be filled with you, Jesus, to experience the love I long for, to know eternity. Jesus, I accept you as my only source of good, my Savior, and my God. Amen.